Folks, it's great to be with you here today, I'm back with you. I've been at Gospel in the City a few times over the years, um, but, but good to be with you here today. So they talk about water cooler conversations. Uh, it feels a bit like an Americanism to me, but I know there are, there are water coolers in workplaces, aren't there? there? There were in my day. We don't have one in church. We're not that, that posh, but you, you guys will work in places with water coolers. So you know about a water cooler conversation or a, a chat over lunch. So picture the scene, you're having a conversation with a few colleagues uh, over lunch and somehow uh, the the conversation turns to religion. How could it be that there's just one true faith? One colleague asks. It's arrogant to say that that one religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it. Another one says, surely all religions are equally good. And they're valid, they meet some sort of needs in their participants. Uh, That's right, another colleague chips in and says, the the belief in one true religion isn't just narrow, it's dangerous. Religions led to endless division and violence in our world. Um, If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, then the world will never know peace. So listening in on that conversation for one minute, we hear a few different uh, aspects, uh, a few different views that people have about this trouble uh, with religions and multiple religions. So there it is, we're troubled with Christianity's claim to be the one true religion. You might imagine that somebody in my shoes would try to soften that and duck out of it. I'm not going to. I'm going to say, first thing I say is that Christianity is exclusive. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only way that a person can come to know the living God. When I chose a Bible passage, I'm not really going to teach that passage which Sam just read, but I do want to point out to you what Jesus said at the end of that passage. He said, no one comes to the Father, that is the living God, except through me. That's not very ambiguous, is it? He says, it's me. I'm the way you get to know God. So I'm not, as I say, shying away from the exclusive claims of Christianity. I'm putting them right out there and saying, that's what I want to talk about. New York church leader Tim Keller tells of a time when he was invited to a dialogue, to be the Christian representative of a dialogue with a Jewish rabbi and an Islamic imam. So the panelists were asked to discuss the differences among their religions. He says that the conversation was courteous, it was intelligent, it was respectful in tone, and each speaker agreed that there were significant differences between the the major faiths. And, And that particularly got to be the case when they started to talk about Jesus when they started to make the conversation more specific about the person of Jesus Christ, and they all agreed with this statement. Listen to this statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, 
then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. Okay, the Jew and the, the Muslim agree to that statement. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. And everybody around the table agrees to that. They're all saying that there's something very, very different going on in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And that's the, the religious leaders themselves. Bottom line, says Keller, is that we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. So I've started by saying, yes, the claims of Christianity are exclusive. And I'm going a bit further and I'm saying it's different than these other religions. So let's push further into this. People all over the world today believe that religion's a real barrier to world peace. You'll have heard that. If only we could sweep religion out of the way, then peace and harmony would reign. Um, Especially problematic, I think, for many people. The, The religious instinct in general isn't so difficult. You know, if you go into a New Age shop and buy some candles or a nice well-being book, people don't find that difficult. It's these, um, maybe these traditional uh, religions, uh, the Christianity, the Jewish faith, Islam that I've mentioned, they get a bad press for creating feelings of superiority. They're exclusive and they say, it's my way or uh, no other way. And sometimes I think the way in which adherers of these religions practice, I I think they're open to that accusation, okay? I think Christian people historically and in the present are open to accusations of a a wrong posture uh, around what they believe about God and about themselves. Because, because we recognize this dynamic that religions can cause division, what we have now throughout the world is political and cultural leaders saying, let's, let's get rid of this. Let's, let's see if we can create a, a religionless society. There are a lot of different ways in which they go about that. And I want to think about those for a few moments with you. First, you either outlaw religion, you condemn it as irrelevant, or you force it to be privatized. I want to think about each of those for a couple of minutes, these strategies for getting religion off the table. You could outlaw religion, just ban it. If if you could prove that something was definitely detrimental for society, you you might find a way to to do that and have uh, the support of your population. But when you look back historically at those who have tried to do it in the 20th century, I'll have to mention the Soviet Union. They were uh, an aggressively atheist regime. Communist China, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. In a different way, the Nazis in in Germany had a a particular relationship with, with religion, organized religion. These regimes all have one thing in common. They wanted to keep a tight grip on, on religion to prevent it from dividing society, to keep everybody together uh, and to keep them with the state. That list of 
regimes that I've mentioned, I suppose I've just one basic question for you. Do any of those evoke a feeling of well-being in you? Is there, like, is there a long queue of you waiting to live in the Soviet Union, communist China, Nazi Germany, or under the Khmer Rouge? These, these moments in history where the effort was made to oppress religion, we, we don't generally associate them with purple patches for human flourishing. In his book, The Twilight of Atheism, uh, Belfast-born academic Alistair McGrath says this, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes in human history. The greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Okay. There's a, I suppose there's another idea doing the rounds. Um, it's the widespread belief that as the world develops, as, as we have technological development, uh, the world will become less and less religious. We need to be careful by, uh, we, we probably read the world through a very, very local lens. Uh, it may be true that religious affiliation in the, the West has, has been diminishing uh, in, in recent years. But Christianity's growth, particularly in the developing world, has been astonishing in the same time period. Did you know, some of these statistics made me smile, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than in the United States, more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the US, Scotland and Ireland combined. <coughs> Presbyterians in Ghana, I can't quite get that, but Korea, in the last century went from a population of 1% Christian to 40% Christian. So I, I use a few statistics just to illustrate that what we see at a local level isn't the whole story. Okay, let me maybe move on from that. If it's true that religion can't easily be killed off by state control, option one is just to outlaw it then maybe a better way to get rid of religion, uh, there's a better way to deal with it. And that is to just to, to show that it's uh, irrelevant. If, if you could educate people in a certain way and create arguments where it's considered outrageous uh, to have religious belief or certainly not politically correct, to claim that you have a religion and it's the only true religion. We could state and we could restate particular beliefs until they began to feel like common sense. And anyone who disagreed with us uh, would demonstrate that they're, they're a fool or that they're a danger to society. By the way, in case you haven't recognized it, that's the climate we live in, in Belfast in 2019. Let's look quickly at one particular belief that's uh, being bandied around that seeks to undermine the exclusive claims of Christianity. Take, for example, the idea all religions are equally valid and they basically teach the same thing. I, I think um, Sam forwarded me an email 
um, from somebody here who had been inviting a work colleague, and I saw saw the reply, and I, I think I saw this kind of idea in that reply. Uh, all all religions are equally valid, and they basically teach the same thing. Do we really believe that? If you're running with that idea that that one religion stands beside the other and it's not okay to critique them, I'm going to ask you to rethink that. When I was a younger guy, David Koresh and his branch Davidians made the headlines after they enclosed themselves um, in a some sort of a site. Where was that? That happened. Somebody. Waco, Waco, Texas closed themselves in in some compound. He, had pro he, had, he was a religious leader. He told them the end of the world was coming and they, they burnt themselves to death. There are religions in the world that still uh, require child sacrifice. You'll say, Christoph, you've gone to extremes. I am going to extremes, but I'm trying to illustrate something. My question is, does David Koresh and the Branch Davidians does a religion that requires child sacrifice stack equally with all other religions? I'm going to say it doesn't. And I'm seeing a few of you nod. So immediately this idea that all religions are equal is, is one that once we examine it, we realize, I don't know that I really want to run with that. So people who, who say all religions are equally valid, they might say, okay, if you take the lunatic fringe away, all the big religions, they can, they can stand side by side and we can regard those as equally valid. Look at Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. They all say much the same thing. Um, this should terrify you, but I remember going to a church in Vancouver and chatting to a lady in, in the congregation after the church service. And she told me about a, an avenue in Vancouver that led out to the airport and it passed through a very multicultural part of the town. And she said, oh, that's the highway to heaven because all the religions are there. And her, for her, the implication was, it's great, they're all there. It's like either take exit 12 or 13, 14, because they're all going to the same place. These people would say, there are doctrinal differences between these religions, but they don't, they're superficial. They don't matter. They all worship the same God, but only in different ways. The God they worship is an all-loving spirit in the universe. Now, the only way we can say that is we need to have an extraordinary arrogance to say that. Do you, do you know why? First of all, we don't know anything about the religions we're talking about because they don't actually believe that. Okay? Uh, a Buddhist doesn't believe in an all-loving spirit in the sky. A Buddhist doesn't believe in a personal God at all. So once we start saying all religions believe the same thing, then we're, we're taking a very arrogant posture over and against these other religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are very different than Buddhism. Buddhism. They all believe in a personal God who holds people accountable for the particular things they believe and practice. He's not some all-loving spirit of the universe. So, you see, there's a problem here when we put all religions side by side and say they're all the same. We're usually speaking out of ignorance because they're clearly not the same. 
and we're minimizing differences which are extremely important to those who know and practice these religions. So, back to this question, is it a narrow thing to claim that there's only one true religion? It might be. It might be a very exclusive thing to say, but it's no more exclusive than to say all religions are the same and are leading us all to the same Father God, Spirit in the sky. Because that's a, an exclusive view of the world we, we've taken. Folks, the truth is, all of our views that we hold about these things, if we hold a view at all, are exclusive. So you hold, if you have any view about uh, religion, how a person is made right with any sort of a God, it's a view that will exclude other views. So I'm asking you to accept that you might just have exclusive views about this whole question today as much as Jesus Christ did or as I do. So we've, we've looked at two options so far. Could we kill religion off? We've thought about attempts to condemn it to irrelevance. The third and final approach is that we could force people to, to take their religious practice and make it a very private thing. If religion's divisive, when you bring it into the public sphere, tell people not to bring it into the public sphere. And, and you'll know what I'm talking about if you're working in a Belfast workplace. You probably don't feel as free to talk about what you believe in terms of religion as you would like to. You know that it's not okay to just say everything you think about religious belief in the public sphere. If we could get people to stop doing that, then surely life would be fine. Now, there's a problem with this view as well. It all sounds very objective, very rational. Keep your religious practice outside of the public sphere. Leave it at home. Leave it in your leisure time. The problem is we can't actually do that. Somebody might say, if we could only do that, if we could leave all of our religious beliefs, all of our deep-held convictions outside, it means that when we're together in the public sphere, all we're ever doing is having an objective conversation about what works best for everybody. Problem is, we arrive at those conversations, at those tables, to have that conversation, and we can't agree about what works best for everybody. So, what if we have an entirely different view about what human life is and how it works best? In Northern Ireland, we're struggling with that at the moment, aren't we? With a, an abortion question hanging over us. Everyone, whether they hold religious beliefs or not, holds deep-seated beliefs about what human life's all about and how it works best and this affects their decision-making in public life. Again, Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, when you come out into the public sphere, it's impossible to leave your convictions about ultimate values behind. The myth of objectivity, okay, there's no such thing. Everybody brings their stuff. The question is just what stuff you bring and where you got it. Keller says, let's take marriage and divorce laws as a case study. 
Is it possible to create an entirely neutral set of laws that we all agree work and are independent of our own particular worldview? I don't believe that it is, he says. Your view of what's right will be based on what you think the purpose of marriage is. If you think that marriage is mainly for the protection of the vulnerable and the rearing of children to benefit the whole society, then you'll make divorce quite difficult. If you think that the purpose of marriage is primarily the happiness and emotional fulfillment of the adults who enter into it, then you'll make divorce much easier. The divorce laws you think will work will depend on your prior beliefs of what it means to be happy and fully human. There is no objective universal consensus about what that is. Do you see the difficulty about this notion of privatizing religion, leaving it at home? It's not possible to do it. None of us can leave our stuff at home. A much more honest and effective way to navigate through life is to bring our stuff to the table and share it and say what it is. Folks, I'm going to try and wrap things up. Um, one last comment on that. Um, the difficulty with privatizing religion, in the end, it, it can end up being nowadays a call from those who don't believe in, in the moral uh, outputs of the traditional world religions. It, it can feel like a, people coming along and saying, pushing them out of the road and saying, move over and let our alternative worldview now take center stage. That is every bit as oppressive a position to be in uh, as we were ever in before. So it's probably best just to name that. I, I, I would suggest there are problems with the role of religious practice in some of our political life in the past. I'm not defending that. But I'm not sure that the answer is to push everything that we have learned from our, our Christian conviction out. I think the, the better way is to, to talk about this place we find ourselves in. Let me just wrap up. We've talked here today about the divisiveness that religion can cause um, and the efforts that have been made in the past to, to, to get it out of the road. Those efforts have failed. Religion's still a problem, isn't it? You know, it just, it, it's still a problem. World news, I, I'm, I'm only going to name it because we, it's the terms we talk in, Islamic terrorists, Islamic fundamentalists. We, we still see people from other religions as a, a danger to us. The world doesn't feel comfortable while there's these religious commitments in it. I want to close by making a positive case for Christianity. I think that real biblical Christianity, the kind of thing that we're trying to talk about here when we gather at Gospel in the City, a place where Jesus Christ is at the center, the, the Bible, God's word, is we struggle to understand it well. I think that kind of Christian faith has remarkable power to bring healing and reconciliation and to put aside the, the divisive tendencies of the human heart. Let me, let me try to persuade you of that in the last three minutes. Christianity, I think, provides a wonderful basis for respect 
among all people. Christians believe, you see, before they believe that we're all different, they believe that we're all the same. That we're created by a loving God in the image of that loving God. And for that reason, a Christian, a person who understands God's call on their lives, will love and respect every other person. A person of all faiths or none. Christians respect people who don't share their beliefs because they share their God-given humanity. So Christians respect people. A second thing that a, a, a Christian, somebody who's really understood the Christian story, will bring to any public discourse is humility. A lot of religions are about um, sort of self-improvement, the things that you do to make yourself right with the, you know, there's, there's a lot of morality in, in, in some religious talk and practice. And, and that can make religious people quite dangerous because religious people become, come to think of themselves as superior. I'm the one who's living a moral life. I'm the one who's got it right. And, and all those other people aren't. A Christian who's understood their story would never think like that. We're not people who've got it right. My story that I believe tells me that I'm deeply flawed. That quite frankly, left to my own devices, I am stuffed. And that unless God intervenes and sends me a savior, a rescuer to lift me out of my, my filth, then I, I'm lost. So a Christian, no matter how many years they've walked with Jesus Christ or called themselves a Christian, will always be a humble person. A Christian then is respectful, they're humble, and thirdly, a Christian will always serve, and they will serve anybody. I started out here this afternoon by not hiding away from the exclusiveness of Christianity, in fact, pushing right into it. But let me make a distinction for you. Christians are entirely exclusive when they talk about how we're made right with God. There's only one way. His name's Jesus. But Christians then flip and become entirely inclusive in terms of who they will share their lives and the, the message of Jesus Christ with. At the heart of our faith, you see, let me remind you, there's a man who, who taught us to love our enemies, who while he was being nailed to a cross, prayed for them, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he calls us to follow him and to, to love our enemies and to, to forgive anyone who ever acts against us. So Christians don't oppress other people. They don't use violence. They're compelled to love their enemies and to seek their best interests. I'll share one story just to try to let this land with you. Brought home to me in the last couple of weeks, a friend of mine, uh, a leader in our church with me, he'd just been on a, a missions trip, trip to Lebanon. Lebanon's just north of Israel in the Middle East there. 
Um, he'd been in Lebanon, but he'd been working mostly with Syrian refugees. So if you followed the, the movements in recent years there, you'll understand that. And he told me this. He said, the love of these Lebanese Christians is amazing. So the, the Christians who live in Lebanon, for years, Syria was their oppressor. There's nobody in this community who doesn't have a story to tell about how a member of their family or a friend wasn't raped or killed by occupying Syrian forces, militants. And yet, these Lebanese Christians reach out to them in love. They're showing what it's like to follow one who calls us to love our enemies. Folks, I'm out of time. To the objection that there can't be just one true religion, I say, why not? Why not? The religious leaders seem to think that that's a more likely outcome than our, oh, they're all the same. To the criticism that religion leads to division and the, well, to that criticism, we take our hats off and we say, yeah, there are times when that's been true. And as a, a Christian leader, I would look back over the course of, uh, of European history and I would say, yeah, there are times when Christian people haven't lived worthy of Jesus. But we also say this, Jesus Christ died to make his enemies into his friends. He's our savior, he's our Lord, he's the one we follow. And we continue to believe that he is the only hope for the world. Folks, that's a, a few minutes of a stab at this question of whether all religions are really the same. Thank you.